The Book Tour, Episode 17, Scotty. I give a talk in a community centre in Memphis, which goes well. An attentive older audience, but they haven't come to buy my books, even prettily signed ones. After the talk is finished, they want to tell me about themselves, their ancestors and their family histories. So I listen, then catch a bus south to Mobile, Alabama. A man sits beside me in the station, one of those tall, slender live wires. He's one of the funniest people I've ever met, but the comments and one-liners come so quickly I don't have time to remember a word. He's a sharp, magic person, the sort you meet rarely in life. No ready-made jokes for him, no reworked stories, just another way of seeing things, seeing them quickly and knowing how to manipulate irony. What does he do for a living? He's a coal miner. I must have stared with astonishment as the old mining images raced through my head. Mining communities described as open cesspits, where mud slid down the hills in torrents, covered tents, and smothered the men inside. In those places, there was no good water to be had. Lice were combed away with bowie knives. To fight rats, Wildcats and snakes were kept in the tents during the day. Some mine workers were uneducated slum dwellers from the east, people who had only known deprivation and filth. Unwilling to adopt sanitary measures, preparing food in the open, but refusing to use privies, they contaminated their water supplies and created the perfect environment for cholera. People died like flies and unburied bodies were left in the open air for scavengers to eat. Of course, this clever man's life is far from my horror tales of the 19th century. In the mining town where he lives, he, his buddies, and their wives have a great time. Every Friday and Saturday night they get together, create floor shows and theatrical performances, eat, drink, and are merry. Those wretched old stories are just wretched old stories. With a jaunty step and a cheery goodbye, he travels on homeward. Heading south, the bus is crowded. A few seats away, a vast woman sits with two children, a baby who never stops crying, and a boy who plays endlessly with an obnoxious bleeping game. As Jean-Paul Sartre said, hell is other people. Ignoring both tots, mom reads, low-carb success, how to lose weight and keep it off. She remains seated at every stop. Calorie burning is not part of the plan. So we pass the usual. Lots for sale, cookie-cutter suburban sprawl with enticing names. Magnolia Homes, Forest Green Parkway, Woodland Terrace, but hardly a tree in sight, much less a copse. There's other housing out there too, shanties. Many aren't connected to the public sewage system, nor are there septic tanks. 
Instead, PVC piping carries waste several yards away, dumps it into ditches or onto waste ground. No surprise that outbreaks of E. coli are common and that many people here are hookworm infested. Much of this poverty is due to heirs' property, the land purchased or deeded after the American Civil War. Informally inherited without a title or will, after several generations it is difficult to determine who the legal owners are, who has paid their share of taxes, and who has helped maintain the land. Sometimes the heirs don't even know each other. Without a clear title, there is no possibility of obtaining grants, improvement loans, or disaster relief funding. Heirs' property is the leading cause of substandard living conditions amongst African Americans, Native Americans, and the Mexican-American colonias in the states of Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, Texas, North Carolina, Virginia, Florida, and Louisiana. Surrounded by a lot for sale, a modern consumer palace and a fast food emporium, is a large tent with a big sign. With God, all things are possible. That's certainly good news for some, and it was particularly good for Mary Scott. I met Scotty many years ago, when she lived around the corner from me in a small California town. The mother of too many grubby but well-behaved children, she had been widowed once, and a more recent ex was serving endless time for first-degree murder. It wasn't his fault, really, she said. Scotty was a stringy, lean woman with chewed-looking, naturally white-blonde hair and very pale blue eyes. She wasn't quite beautiful. She looked a little too backwoods and bony for that, but her smile was warm and she was kindly. Scotty passed her days sitting out on the front steps of her slapped-together shack, similar to the dump I was then living in, making lovely necklaces from the glass pearls of old rosaries she found in charity shops. She wasn't committing any sort of heresy by using sacred material in this way, she said. On the contrary, the beads had a magic power and would bring protection and happiness to those who bought and wore them. She was a very good salesperson. Several times a day, a big motorcycle passed, a Harley. On it sat a leather-clad handsome rider with a thick black beard and long black hair tied by a bandana. People didn't fool around with sissy stuff like helmets back in those days. He would smile and wave. She would wave, smile in a certain secret way, and just keep on stringing those pretty glass pearls. She was weaving a spell, she said. Those beads would eventually net her dawn, the delicious motorcycle man. At the moment, he had an old lady tucked away somewhere. After a while, Don began slowing slightly as he passed. Then he took to stopping where the weedy front yard met the road. Scotty would sashay down her cracked walkway, go talk to him, her hips arched sweetly, her eyes knowing. And when he drove off again, she'd come back to the front steps sit 
smile in that secret way, and string those magic beads. I moved away and lost contact with Scotty. But one day, as I was walking along a street in a nearby town, a tall, dark, handsome, well-groomed man in an expensive dark suit approached me. Didn't I recognize him? It was Don, the former motorcycle man. He and Scotty were married now. Why not come back home with him, say hello to her? They were just about to go off travelling. I followed him to a vast new house, gaudy and pretentious, in an excellent neighbourhood, a world away from that former shack of hers. The greatest shock was seeing Scotty. She was dressed in a long, flowing white robe and had transformed herself into a radiant beauty with long golden hair and a beatific smile. So beatific, I could almost see a halo shimmering prettily over her head. Surrounding her were the angelic-looking offspring. Yes, she and Don had done well, Scotty said. The Virgin Mary had come to her in a vision, had told her she had a calling. Now, with Dawn as her manager, she was constantly on the road, preaching the word to thousands who packed into huge prayer tents all across the country. Not only was she a blazing success, they were also pulling in an enormous amount of money. Well done, Scotty, wherever you are now. In Mobile, the bus station is quite a distance from downtown. Which direction should I take to get there? Once again, the three young ladies behind the counter come up trumps. Oh, you can't walk there. It's at least a couple of hours away. Really? I try not to feel discouraged. Is it a nice city? They look at each other and shrug. I could be talking about the centre of Vladivostok, as far as they're concerned. What's of particular interest in Mobile? More shrugs. But there's a nice mall a little further out, calls a woman from the back. Tell her how she can walk there. Since I already had this same conversation way back in Thunder Bay, I now know the world is divided into two sorts of people, mall people and other people. In the end, I set out anyway, and discover it's only a twenty-minute walk, one that takes me past once-glorious mansions, formerly set in verdant countryside, and now falling to bits between used car lots, fried chicken outlets, and suburban housing estates with reassuring names like Casa Marina and Cool Waters. In town, Overshadowed by tall skyscrapers and the usual tedious high-glass office blocks is the preserved-for-tourism historic centre. But there are also so many remarkable Victorian houses. My imagination reels with story possibilities. Can I just climb in a window, please? Take a peek? Pretty, please? Come live with you for a little while? Back at the bus station... I think about going to Tallahassee. What's it like? I ask my fellow passengers. After all, we are all headed in the same direction on this bus. All around, there are only shrugs. No one seems to have been there. 
Then one man pipes up. Long time since I seen it. Lots of beaches. Just beaches, that's all you can see. Must have changed since then, though. Bet it has. Since Tallahassee is inland, I'm sure his conclusion must be right, and I decide to head for Panama City instead. Mm -hmm.